Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. At a time when our republic feels particularly unsettled, we're asking, what do students know about their government? What should they know? Recent studies have found that civics education is in pretty bad shape. Xavier University, for example, found that one-third of Americans could not pass the civics portion of the American citizenship test. Indeed, teachers tell us that there is a critical need for materials that help students understand their role in a democracy and as citizens of the world. Teachers of all grade levels say that they are addressing such issues in the classroom every day, whether the lesson is on understanding the three branches of government, spotting fake news, or simply learning how to disagree respectfully. Here to talk about why civics education is so important are four of our Classroom Magazine's editors. Later, we'll hear from a fourth grade teacher about the lessons that she's bringing to her students. With us in the studio now, we have Steph Smith, Editorial Director of Scholastic News. Hi, Steph. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Since we have a crowd, let's let the rest of you introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Lane Falk, and I am the Editorial Director of Scholastic News for first and second graders. Hi, I'm Ian Zach, and I'm the executive editor for the New York Times Upfront, which is our high school news magazine. Hi, I'm Mary-Kate Frank, and I'm the deputy editor of Junior Scholastic, which is our middle school magazine. It's great to have you here, and it's great to be talking about civics. We know what an important topic it is for teachers and students around the country. Could you tell us what the term civics encompasses? We teach civics in Scholastic Classroom magazines from pre-K to 12th grade. And for the early grades, civics is really about being kind to one another, following classroom rules, being kind to your classmates, being kind in your community, understanding that people need to have empathy for one another. Also understanding American history, things like what are American symbols, what is the flag, that kind of thing. As you get older, kids can understand civics from a perspective of, How does your government work? The three branches of government, the checks and balances, voting, why it's important. We run debates for kids a lot in uh, my magazine, Scholastic News 3 to 6, and kids debate the issues and they can vote online about them. And that's another way you can have civic involvement, right? To educate yourself on an issue and then debate it amongst yourselves. That's what we're supposed to be doing in a democracy. Why is it so important to bring civics to the forefront in classrooms today? I think there's a feeling out there, first of all, that Americans don't know their basic civics. The Annenberg Public Policy Center uh, did a survey in September, and only a quarter of Americans could name the three branches of government, and more than a third couldn't name a single right guaranteed under the First Amendment. So clearly there's a chunk of people out there that we're, that we're not hitting with this information. Uh, And of course, the the earlier and the more you can do it in schools, the more likely they are to retain that later on. And we hope become engaged citizens and vote. We also have among the lowest uh, voter uh, participation of any industrialized nation. And so, again, if you can get people interested and engaged and informed, the hope is that they'll, they'll vote when it comes time. 
And what are you hearing from teachers? What are some of their biggest concerns or what are they telling you that they need in the classroom today? I was Skyping with a high school teacher this week in Ohio, and I asked her, what is the biggest challenge that you face in the classroom? And she, without skipping a beat, she said, I'm trying to create the next generation of engaged citizens. And I just thought that is so perfect. That's exactly what teachers are trying to do. And that's why civics is so important. Civics is how government works, what our rights and responsibilities are in a democracy, how the media works, and how we can get involved. And that you need all of those things to be engaged, informed citizens. And I think current events is what brings all those things together. Uh, Kids will learn civics and media literacy better in the context of current events. Uh, If you can get them interested in the event itself or in the issue, they're going to soak up the civics part of it. And that's kind of what we do. We bake it into the content that we put out. If you can get a kid interested in in a Supreme Court case about should police be able to search your cell phones without... Uh, permission, then suddenly they're interested in the Fourth Amendment and privacy rights. And so that's what teachers most want. They want you to engage their students so that they can learn this stuff easily and remember it. Classroom Magazines has covered civics and the workings of government for decades, but you've now created a website called We the People. Could you tell us why you did this and what educators can find there? Yes, absolutely. We created the website because we realize now more than ever, it's incredibly important for kids to understand how our government works, the importance of voting, how kids can get involved, and to understand the phenomenon of fake news, you know, how to separate facts from fiction. So we basically curated our best content from the magazines uh, and put it online with videos, engaging videos. Kids love the videos. um, And to explain all of those things I just talked about. And it's free. Could you give us an example of how you approach classroom lessons around media literacy? Absolutely. So last spring uh, for Scholastic News 5-6, which is for fifth and sixth graders, we did a story about how to spot fake news. And of course, it was from a news angle saying, you know, this is obviously a news story and fake news is out there. And we led with an example of someone had put on Facebook or a website that you could only own two pets now or something like that. And it caused an uproar. And of course, it was fake. So it can be benign stuff like that, or it can be material that actually sways a presidential election and that that was what was going on in the news. So we covered it as a news story, but we also gave uh, kids uh, information on how they can spot fake news. You know, and adults and kids both need this, right? The Stanford University study that came out recently saying that 80% of middle school kids can't tell the difference between fake news and real news um, obviously shows the need for this. What tips do you give them to assess sources, for example? Well, the biggest tip is to be skeptical. If it seems off or hard to believe, you're probably right. Um, But we encourage kids to be detectives. Figure out, is this true or not true? Don't just accept it because your friend sent it to you or it's on a site that might look real. You know, Google the publication's name. Is it a real publication? Click on the About section. Learn more about, you know, what the site is all about. Google the, uh, the person who wrote 
the article to see if he or she has written other things like it. Do, you know, is it a reputable person? Is it a reputable organization? And even things, kids like to look for things like this. Is the headline in italics or, or bold? Are there lots of exclamation points in it? When was the last time you saw a bold, italed headline with exclamation points in a reputable newspaper or website? Almost never. And those are things that will tip you off that it's probably not a real news story. It's either completely made up or it's slanted one way or another. Mary-Kate, what about the difference between fact and opinion? Well, that's also very important um, because the term fake news has become very muddy and it's, it, it encompasses um, flat out just, you know, hoaxes, um, bad journalism, and then sometimes people take it when they just don't agree with someone's opinion. Um, so I think that part of that is establishing um, first-person writing and, and, and column pieces as opposed to um, articles and narrative pieces. Well, as you know, there's a great deal of discussion about how political conversations are no longer civil. What is Scholastic's role in helping students see other viewpoints and disagree respectfully? Well, it's exactly what I just talked about. You know, actually all of our magazines, I would say grade three through 12th grade run these debates, right? That we actually have kids or experts weigh in with informed opinions. And we we tell kids, you really have to do your research. You know, before you speak intelligently about something, before you go to the polls one day and be an informed voter, you have to actually do research and you have to back up your arguments with research. And if the other side disagrees with you, it's not time to yell at them or dig your heels in and get defensive. It's time to double down on your well-researched opinion, you know, and that we encourage that kind of behavior through our debates, through our balanced news stories. You know, we, we try very hard to be fair and balanced. And just like all journalists do, we interview experts. We look at all sides of an issue. We don't tell them what to think. We tell them how to think. And actually, what's most important is to be informed and to think critically. Lane, what about you? How does this apply to the early grades? We know that it's so important that we need to learn how to disagree with each other respectfully. And we can see that this is a problem in adult society right now. People don't know how to talk to each other. And in our magazines, we teach kids to be respectful and kind. Sometimes that might be in sort of role play type articles where we give real scenarios that happen in classrooms. And we give teachers suggestions as to how to lead discussions. How can we solve the problem of two kids wanting to use the same computer or or um, two kids want to play at recess and another kid wants to join in, but they don't want him to. And um, so it might be like that. And sometimes it might be something much bigger, like how do we talk about when we disagree with the laws? So for example, last February, we did an article um, for Black History Month about a woman named Diana Najuma. And when she was seven years old, she began doing sit-ins um, at lunch counters in Oklahoma City. And for six years, she and a group of kids as young as five years old spent all their spare time doing sit-ins until one by one they desegregated lunch counter after lunch counter after lunch counter until the Civil Rights Act was finally passed. And when we did that, the response was so enormous from kids and teachers because they were kids as young as them, you know, and they literally changed the world. And so sometimes it's how we get along and 
how we treat each other, and sometimes it's how we peacefully and respectfully show that we don't agree with the way things are and we want to change them. We know that your readers, Mary-Kate, are too young to vote. Still, as we all are agreeing, what happens in this country and what happens in the government matters to them very much. How do you help involve them in the political process even when they can't vote? We do share stories of kids their age who are actively working to change things or just even in the last election, we ran first-person essays, one from a young girl who was volunteering in the Clinton campaign and one from a young man who was volunteering for the Trump campaign. And we just, they talked about some of the work they'd been doing, going door to door, talking to people on the phone, handing out flyers and really important things and how engaged they were and why um, they believed in their candidate. And they each got equal space. And I think it was really inspiring for, for kids to see just because they can't vote doesn't mean they can't be change agents and they can't make a real difference in what's going on right now. Kids, you know, who even are very young can get involved in the democratic process. You know, again, whether it's, you know, writing a letter to their mayor or their congressman or, you know, raising money for a cause they believe in. We often feature kids in our magazine who are helping, um, you know, needy populations, whether it's the homeless, you know, or something like that by, you know, doing, you know, fundraisers. And, and this helps the community, right? This gets back to being active in your community. But we also feature kids who work with their local and state politicians to do things like get ordinances and laws passed. We recently featured um, a girl in Kennebunk, Maine, who worked to get a law passed or an ordinance passed to ban plastic bags in Kennebunk because she thought that, you know, they were causing too much litter and animals were eating them and it was causing problems for animals. And so she actually went and pushed this to her local officials and, and the town passed it. So we feature kids like that regularly. And it's, it's important for kids to know they can make a difference. They do have a voice even if they don't vote. And then to be used to doing stuff like that. So they do it when they can vote and they're older. Very good point. We all want voters to be informed. And yet we find not even our voters often ill-informed, but that very few, relatively speaking, eligible voters go to the polls. I think it's fewer than 60% in the past few presidential elections. How are you hoping or how is Scholastic hoping to turn that around with this material? Well, actually, you know, one of the biggest ways we cover civics is through elections, right? And last year during the presidential election, we had a website dedicated to the presidential election that explained the electoral process and who the candidates were, but it also had a student vote. And getting kids used to voting, that their opinion matters, they can educate themselves on the issues and actually vote, even though it's a mock poll for young kids, is incredibly important. And as I said, they vote in our debates too. We let them know that you have to become informed, you have to be able to back up your opinions with real facts, and then you have to actively say your opinion in the voting booth, in public. You can write a letter to your congressman. You can campaign for an issue you really care about. And we just, we tell kids this again over and over and over in our magazines over the years because we hope that when they become eligible to vote, they actually do go vote, you know, inform themselves ahead of time and campaign for the issues they find important to them. Thanks so much again to Steph, Ian, Mary-Kate, and Lane for joining us. Now we'll talk with Gail Sider, a fourth grade teacher at Hutchinson Elementary School in Pelham, New York. Hi, Gail. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Suzanne. We're delighted. First, I'd like to ask you, what does civic education mean to you? 
So there's a narrow definition, and then of course there's a more, you know, there's a broader perspective. So civic education, I think, to most of us means teaching about how our government works. I think of it, and that's probably because of my role as an elementary teacher and dealing with young children who are really just growing and developing in the world. You know, I think of it as being educated in how to be a citizen of the United States federally. And, and how to function as a citizen of the world. So that, that encompasses a whole lot more for me. It takes, takes into account certain principles and certain values that really transcend your ability to just you know, know how our government works. Okay, so let's start with being a citizen of the United States. What particular aspects would you focus on there? So in fourth grade, as you know, um, perhaps throughout the country, The social studies curriculum is dedicated to the history of your particular state. In New York, we're very lucky because so much of our country's history is is focused in in, and around New York State. So we learn about the, of course, the creation of our state government, uh, but as well, we learn about the creation of our national government because as we learn the... um, the first seat of our national government was actually New York City. So that is, that's a, that's a starting point in terms of our curriculum. So that is something that our students learn. They learn about the three branches of government. They learn about the different parts of each branch of government. They learn about the responsibilities of each. And we even go into a bit about checks and balances. I think if you check the New York State standards on this front in terms of government education. The focus is really designed to be on local government so that there's more of a direct connection for the students. So we do try to always bring it down to the local level and we show how even in the village or the town of Pelham, um, there's an executive branch and there is a judicial branch and there's a legislative branch so that they see how government is mirrored on lots and lots of different levels. And what about on a world level, being citizens of the world? What do you want that to mean to your students, or how do you approach that? Well, we're blessed here at Hutchinson with a very diverse student body, and it was a real positive culture shock for me moving from one side of town to the other. We have we have three ELL teachers here, not full-time, but three LL teachers at any one time here because we have students from all over the world who come sometimes speaking very little English, requiring a, a lot of support, but bringing such a wealth of, of worldviews and, and perspectives. And we have an international day every year through the PTA where our you know, different cultures are shared through different food and dance and dress. And it's, it's a really very special place. So there is, I think, an, an enhanced responsibility to just educate children in what, what the world offers and provides in the way of culture and language and experience. And that's a value. And as well, it's something very concrete that, that we can offer them. This probably dovetails into another one of your questions, but also through Scholastic News and through other avenues, we do try to provide a, a global perspective on, on what's going on in the world. And, and fourth graders are 
just at that perfect age where they're they have enough background in the general concepts and they are really ready cognitively and and emotionally and psychologically to to really understand and be very interested in what's going on in the world and and to make some sense of it so it's it's really a sweet spot what are some of the topics that resonate most with them? Well, of course, and, and Scholastic News handles this beautifully. They they love to know about the experiences of children in other parts of the world. And and specifically with a with a civics bent, they might read in Scholastic about, you know, someone like Malala, who, you know, was was changing the policies in her country to make a better place for, for girls for, for furthering their education or just to find out how someone elsewhere might have found a problem maybe with an environmental issue and and took the initiative and pursued that. So children love to hear about the different experiences and perspectives of other children, and even specifically as they relate to how they navigate the channels of government or just, you know, they, they may not think of it in those terms, but how they can advocate for themselves and advocate for others. They have a really strong sense, fourth graders do, of what is right and what is wrong. And they, they really want to act upon that. You know, sometimes that means that they will be bugging somebody about, you know, not doing something at a certain time when they know the rules say that they shouldn't. And maybe there's a little tattling there, but it, it really is all part of this more global sense of, what it means to be a citizen of the world and what are your responsibilities and and how do you take somebody else's point of view? You probably have a lot of requirements for your curriculum, but I'm wondering how often do you typically teach current events? Does it come up weekly or daily? Well, what I do in, we're in a trimester system here and I kind of build throughout the year. We uh, read our scholastic news and we accomplish a lot of goals through Scholastic News. There are ELA goals, there are um, science and social studies goals, and, and of course, current events being a, a sub part of that. And we do that probably about weekly. But at, at some point, I appoint a student each day to have a current event share so that they will be finding out about what's going on in the world, whether it's through Scholastic News, talking to a parent, reading something appropriate at home, listening to something appropriate at home, and sharing it with us orally. And then later in the year, we will actually be writing summaries of current event stories and sharing them that way. What you may or may not know, and I work with a lot of middle and high school students in my, my coaching, they are through, throughout middle school and, and as well in high school, they really have to do a lot of reading of current events analyzing current events. And it's not so easy for them to, to have those skills unless they've, they've gotten some foundational work uh, at the elementary level. For example, a lot of students who are thrown into this don't know the difference between a feature article, let's say, and a news article. And there's a different way that you, of course, that those articles are written, different way that, they're, that you read them, and different ways that you might summarize them. So those are things that we try to teach them. And of course, being informed is, is kind of a threshold uh, 
responsibility of, of a citizen of any community. You, you need to be aware of what's going on. You need to understand what are, what the issues are. So that's, that's a big deal. I will say one part of our curriculum that we return to again and again, and as you might expect, it's of greater import during presidential elections, certainly during any election that is highlighted for any particular reason, is something that we as adults may take for granted, but the difference between facts and opinions. And it, it's something that's not always so clear, especially to, to children. And they just think if something is feels right to them and feels true to them, then it must be a fact. And that's an essential part of what becomes, it can be a language arts lesson, it could be through social studies, but to me, it's part of my civics education because in order to really function in any society, you need to know the difference and to be able to, because you engage differently with facts than you do with opinions. What about sources? Do you get into that level with the students where they figure out how to evaluate a source of information? We do. And we are very lucky that we have a very close relationship with our media specialist who is in all four elementary schools. And she is more and more taking on uh, more and more of our curriculum. So not only will she, oh, she's always addressed these topics, but now it's done more in context. So it will be in a social studies unit or in a science unit where, uh, or for example, we'll be doing a language arts unit where we're going to be researching certain areas of New York State and the children will be focusing on reading informational text and writing summaries of what they read and sharing them to present. And our media specialists will be, of course, discussing with them the different sources um, it's, of course, even more important. And there was a great piece last year on media literacy and the source and fake news. In fact, that was the, the cover story for Scholastic News. And I think the editors, in fact, were here in my classroom when I did a lesson on that. And that was, yeah, the, the kids were very open to that. And they really understand. They really understand that there is a difference and that's important. And of course, they're not able to vote yet, but it's still, they still see value, I would imagine, in learning how the government works. They do. And and they don't vote, of course, in elections proper, but we have votes in the classroom. And what I instill from day one is that your vote is a private matter. And, you know, it may it may look silly if you walk into my room, but anytime we have a, have a vote on anything, it could be something as minor as what what we do with our free time today. We, we did have one that was of greater import and we had we had to vote on the designs that students had created for our school spirit wear. And there were a couple of students who were in our class and to be sensitive to that in particular, you know, it was a good reason that we had our heads down on our desks and nobody is looking. And if I see any set of eyes, then we start all over because it is important that your vote is really your own personal decision, that it, you shouldn't be swayed by what anyone else is doing, what anyone else thinks. You have given this thought yourself and it, it needs to be your own personal decision. And and it's really it's really important. And, and to be able to accept the results of that vote 
is not is not always so easy, but it's a process. We had an example when it was the spiritware designs. We had two or three students in this class who were represented out of the 10 from the whole school, the finalists from the whole school. And one student was really disappointed, but the winner actually turned out to be not only from our class vote, but from the whole school was another student in this class. And this, the student who was disappointed, you know, at first was able to express that. And then, you know, to see him then feel very proud and, and to feel the joy for this other student was, was such a great experience for, for him primarily. So no, we don't vote, but we try to simulate that experience and what they can get out of that at, at, this, at this age. And the other thing we do in our curriculum is we study immigration because again, New York was a focus of, of immigration over the, over the many years, including of course, currently. And we take our students through an immigration simulation where they dress up as people from other countries. They have a whole storyline and we simulate the boat ride and Ellis Island. And then at the end, they take a citizenship test, which is very rigorous. And, and then they take the oath of citizenship and the oath of loyalty. <laughs> I take out all the references to communism and I just say, I promise that I will vote in, you know, every appropriate election and pay all appropriate taxes, something like that. So, again, it's not something that they can act upon, but it's never too early for them to understand the responsibilities that, that will be there someday. You sound like an amazing teacher. <laughs> I wish I were in your class. Well, I thank you. I mean, I, I have a lot of fun. I do. I have a lot of fun, and I really do feel that, you know, I, I'm a career changer. I don't know if anyone told you that. No. But I used, I know, I used to be a tax lawyer So and, and practiced for seven years, and then I was home with my children, and someone said to me, well, why don't you just, you know, get a job at, at the elementary school? You're here all the time. And I wound up going back to school and getting a master's in teaching and wound up in Pelham as an intern. So I, I say this because, you know, the, the, the notion of teaching is still something not new to me, but it's something that I, I had to evolve. It wasn't that I always play acted as a teacher and something that I always thought I would do. And I thought when I started teaching that, okay, I'm teaching all these different subjects and, and I love teaching them all. And then I thought, well, gee, what I'm really teaching is reading and writing. E even in math, it's reading and writing. Even in social studies and science and reading and writing. But what I really, really realized is that what I'm teaching is how to be a good person with good values. And, and that really dovetails into civics education. You know, the overlap between character education, however that's infiltrated into your day, really leads into civics education. So I, I, I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity to, to think about all this within the, you know, through the lens of civics education, because I do feel that a lot of what we naturally do, particularly in the elementary school, because we're so focused on developing children to be the best they can be, is we're really teaching them the values that they need to be good citizens of our country and of the world. That's a fascinating approach. It is fun what you're doing, but also there are so many scary events in the news. I wondered if you had any insights you could share with fellow educators about how you approach those in an age-appropriate way. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge, of course, that, that we experience all too often. And 
we just have a couple of general tips that that seem to work well. We and and, and nothing here is earth shattering. I know. I, I know. We we try to take the children's lead, and we never tell more than we sense they want to know. So everything is really spoon fed, very very slowly and very very simply. We're also very sensitive to the fact that not all families are comfortable having certain topics discussed, whether they're issues of violence, etc. So we we're very sensitive to that, and we we don't leap into these kinds of conversations. We also never show images because we know how profoundly impactful those can be. Um, and, and the bottom line is that we repeat over and over that no matter what the situation, you are safe. You are safe. We just repeat this over and over to our students. And I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have two different, you know, it used to be, of course, they were just fire drills. We now have lockouts and lockdowns. And lockdowns are when we need to actually hide in a space in our classrooms so that we are not visible from the door, from the windows. And that happens when there might be a threat within the building. Lockouts are when there is a threat possibly outside the building and no one can come in and no one can leave. And we have had not only drills of those sorts, that we have had actual incidences, multiple. And, and this is in leafy Westchester. So it's, it's just, it's a different world. Mm-hmm. It's a different world. So we we certainly want to inform kids where we think it would be helpful to them, but we need to be sensitive to their developmental age and to you know the the values of their families. How do they respond emotionally to these events? Or I'm sure you give them time to talk about their reactions and feelings. Yes, and and here's one thing that uh, it's a strategy that I use in my room. I have something that I call. Uh, classroom concerns. And it serves so many purposes. So if you're looking through a, a civics education lens, then this is a way for you to tell me about something that's going on in the classroom that you're not happy about or that you think is going really, really well. Usually it's more <laughs> of the complaining variety. But what I encourage children to do is not to just complain, but say, what would you like? It could be as simple as someone saying, the person next to me is is always putting their books on my desk. I'd really like to move, please. Or it could be you're giving way too much math homework and I'm spending X number of minutes every night. Please give less math, math homework. Or it could be this child is, is really making me feel uncomfortable on the playground. I need some help with strategies. Or it could be I heard that something really terrible happened in Las Vegas. Can you tell me more about what's going on? So that is a way for me to really get a pulse uh, on the kids individually, how they're doing in terms of their interactions or how things are going socially and what's on their minds. So I could start, sometimes I start with that when I hear that it's, it's certainly something that they need to know because they're questioning it. What I tend to find is uh, when I bring it up, I try to ask first what they already know. And always, you know, one or two hands will go up and then you'll get usually a critical mass of maybe a half dozen. 
And it's an opportunity for me to correct any misconceptions, for an opportunity to distinguish between facts and opinions, and to also know where I should start, right? Because if they they think they know the whole story, but they maybe have just a glimmer, then that's where I can start. And, and I'll know based on their reactions. Very rarely do I get an emotional reaction. I think that a lot of kids, even at this age, they do a really good job of, of kind of putting on a good front and maybe keeping it together. But I might get a, a resulting classroom concern saying, please don't talk about these things again. It really makes me upset. And I have. I wonder if you have a favorite civics lesson that you've conducted that you'd want to share with us. I do. It comes up in language arts, actually. We have to uh, teach persuasive writing and, of course, how to interpret persuasive written material. And what we always do is we write letters, actually, to real people, send them, and cross our fingers that we will get responses. Invariably, it will be to someone at the local level. So it could be um, someone in our, uh, like a village trustee. We've sent letters to the mayor. We've sent letters to our school board. We've sent letters to our principal, to our education foundation. And then going up a bit, we might send letters to the governor, uh, depending on the topic. And the topics can range from issues regarding the food in the lunchroom to using disposable bags or eliminating disposable bags. And I have to say very often, we are inspired by what we read in Scholastic News. Uh, For example, we wrote to our Education Foundation and to the principal and the school board, actually. Different children chose different, uh, different people to write to. And we wrote about getting standing desks in our room. We had never heard of standing desks. And we read a short piece in news briefs about standing desks. And we thought that sounded wonderful. We got, so we did some research and we learned the facts, put together our persuasive pieces. And again, this shows the civics values of being informed, taking the initiative, asking for what you want, knowing who to address it to. And then we got response that we eventually got standing desks. So that was that was a real thrill for the children to see. And even if they weren't, if they didn't participate in that particular initiative, still they got to see that we as a group really made a difference. And that's that's huge. That is wonderful, Gail. What a pleasure to talk with you. And I want to come visit your classroom sometime, too. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks again to our guests for raising such important issues. And thank you for listening. To learn more about our We the People website, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. 
We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time. 